0: him this morning. I've heard about him for quite a while. This is Dr. Mike Reeves. Mike is a theologian, a pastor, and author. He was until recently the head of theology for the Universities and Colleges Christian Fellowship in the United Kingdom, and currently a theologian at large. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Where I come from in Alabama, that's probably not a good thing, but... (laughs) A couple of his books include The Good God, Enjoying Father, Son, and Spirit, and The Lighting in the Trinity, An Introduction to the Christian Faith. He is married to Bethan, and together they have two daughters, Lucy and Mia. And one of the things we're going to do that's a little different this year, uh, as we have our main speakers come, is I'm going to ask them uh, how we can pray for them. So I want you guys to get a pencil or something you can jot this down with. Uh, We're going to do this in each session, and I'd like for us to take that seriously. And so, Mike, just something that you want to share of how this group of brothers and sisters who love you can pray for you in the days ahead. And then I'll pray, and then we'll turn it over to you. Thank
1: you very much. Thank you. I've got uh, two things, really. One is a very practical thing. Uh, We're in the midst of moving house right now. And uh, so we're due to exchange contracts on our old house sometime this hour This morning, or is it this afternoon? I don't know what time it is, but around now, anyway. So I'd I'd appreciate prayer for that. That's a very practical thing. Far more important than that, being away from my family right now, I am, and at an adoption conference, I'm very aware of leaving my family, leaving my little girls. And I'd love you to pray for them. I'd love you to pray that they, for as long as they have me, will know an earthly father who loves them and is utterly faithful to them. And I'd love that to be a testimony to them of what fatherhood means. And that's beyond my ability. And I'd love them then to grow up as young ladies, as ladies, who can look to the throne of heaven... And with great joy, without any baggage to that word, Father, cry with confidence, Abba. I would love that for my little girls. If you could pray that for Lucy and for Mia. Thank you.
0: I'm too convicted to pray now. (laughs) (laughs) Father, thank you for this opportunity to meet Mike and to hear his heart already. and we do. We, we partner with him in prayer. We join him in this prayer for this very practical thing of their house and signing all the paperwork. And we all, uh, most of us are aware of how difficult that process can be. And then for his family, for Bethan and for Lucy and Mia, uh, Lord, that you would just, uh, as he just so eloquently said, just continue to bless their lives as they grow into women of faith. Father, we love you and pray that our hearts are open and ready. To be challenged this morning by your word. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Amen. Bless you brother.
1: Thank
0: you. Good morning
1: everyone. It is a a great, great thrill to be with you this morning. Uh, I have been given, well, a prodigal son's welcome to America really. And I'm very grateful for that. And I always find it extraordinary when traveling, particularly going abroad, how... I find I can travel across the world and I find myself among brothers and sisters. I travel so far and I find I'm with family. And that is, of course, a great rejoicing for me. It's lovely, lovely to be with you. So, this morning we start with the story that changes everything. Good stories always do something of that of course stories change us stories shape and educate our tastes they show where things fit and why and in stories we get to see well the goodness of good and the evilness of evil We travel through stories and learn as we go. We travel with the heroes, with the characters, and we find that as they face adversity, we learn how to face adversity. We learn with them. They mature, and we mature a little bit with them. Peter, Susan, Edmund, Lucy... They learn how to be more than children. They learn how to be kings and queens under Aslan. The hobbits, shaken from their shire and their pipeweed. They grow, they mature to become hardy soldiers of the good. And we mature with them. Stories are powerful. And the reason why stories are so powerful is because they are sub-creations, mini-models of the story. They capture our imaginations. They steer who we are because they draw deep down from the very fabric and structure of reality. How much more then, when we tell this story? The story that will ultimately change everything, and which has the power to transform us radically as we hear it now. Now, here, I think, is just what we need today. This. For into a world of mad individualism, where my little story is all that counts, we speak something infinitely grander and more compelling. We speak of truths now, of a shape to reality, that stands above all my fickle ups and downs that stands true despite how I'm feeling despite how I'm doing right now despite all that it stands true here is where we fit well we start this morning with the story gone wrong which may sound like a very gloomy start to our story, you're expecting it's going to be a very thorny, thistly talk this morning. It's going to be the talk gone wrong. But, you know, as we look at this, there is, within this tragedy we'll be looking at, there is actually essential comfort to be found. Cheer for those who live in a fallen and broken world. And that is partly because... It is vitally important that before it goes wrong, there is something to the story. There is something to the story before the tragedy hits. Now, every storyteller knows this in how to tell a story. So, before the ring is discovered and the quest for Mount Doom begins, ah, we get to spend some time in the Shire. Before the Wicked Witch comes along, the princess lives in her castle, spending her time by the fountain in verdant gardens. There's always this in the grand stories. And this is in more than fairy tales. In every culture, you find these yearning, deep, nostalgic memories. Stories of beautiful gardens, of paradises, Tales of a lost and golden age. The Elysian fields, the gardens of Apollo. The happy isles, the paradise of Dilmun, the garden mountain of Jima. And there's more. We feel that some paradise has been lost. We feel it in our very bones. Just with the resonance of the word Now, you know what I mean? Even the house you live in, it's easy for me to say this, moving house, but even the house you live in, it isn't quite fully home, is it? Even there, we hunger for a place of rest, of unconditional love we yearn for it but it eludes us now yet for all the evocative appeal of all those stories the other stories for all they capture of this nostalgia this yearning for home that is in us they only actually capture what is secondary what is derivative for in the story. What matters far more than the loss of a lovely garden is the loss of the lovely and life-giving relationship. And what I want to do is I want to step back to see that moment before tragedy hits and I want to step back into eternity, to the very beginning, to get this. For what do we have back there, in this shire of eternity? Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17:24, put it like this. He said, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Eternity is filled with a father's love for his son. That is where it all starts. That is the bedrock for all reality. The father eternally loving delighting in his perfect son and this eternal fountain of love clearly was of such super cosmic potency so more than satisfied was it so full that the father didn't want to contain it restrain it the father so delighted in his son that he wanted to share his delight, to share his love with others. He wanted his son to be the firstborn among many sons, the firstborn among many brothers. He wanted billions to share his joy, to be embraced With the very love that he has always embraced his son with. And so, that eternal fountain of love brimmed over. The love exploded outwards. This, my friends, is why this cosmos exists. And you can go outside... And you look at the sun up there. You look at the clouds going past overhead. You look at uh, the moon and the stars twinkling at night. And you can think, why? Why are all those things there? Because God loves. Because The Father's love for the Son was so great that it overflowed. Meaning all this. See, unlike all the gods that we make up as humans, unlike all the gods of human religions, this God doesn't create because he's lonely, because he's needy, because he's bored... No, this God created because he is so bursting full of love. And creation is about the extension of that love outward, that it might be enjoyed by others. That is where the story begins, with ecstatic, overflowing, hyper-full love. The Father's uncontained delight in His Son. And so, it is unsurprising then that, that the one created in God's image to be the special recipient of His love should be called in Luke 3 Adam the son of God for Adam was created to know the love of the father he was designed specially to be like the son of God reveling in the love and care that the eternal son has always enjoyed what a title isn't it Adam, the son of God. It defines perfectly what, why, and who he was meant to be. A son, knowing that perfect love of the Father. Now, what I want to do now is I want to press in a bit here. So, would you flick with me to Genesis 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26. And as you do that... I hope this is okay. I'm going to assume some familiarity with the text here of Genesis 1 to 3. We're going to settle down in Genesis 1 to 3. And I'm just going to assume you've got some familiarity with the text... Which means we can just go uh, and cover ground a little bit faster. So, Genesis one twenty-six. Now, you see, man is made in God's image. That is a statement, of course, that still has theologians going after all these years. Because it is a statement so round full of meaning. Made in the image of a relational God, man is a relational being. But... But it's also part of what we've been seeing. Adam, you see, is to be like the image of God. He's created to be like the one who is the bright radiance of his father's glory. The exact imprint of the father's being. Adam, in the image of God, is to be the likeness of the Son of God now see the rest of Genesis 1 26. God said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over well everything isn't it? over everything over all the creation and all the animals let everything be put under Adam's feet and so when he is blessed all creation will be blessed through him and when he is cursed all creation will fall through him now I'd like you to hang in here with me because this downward flow of God's blessing from the Son of God is going to be very, very important. So important, in fact, that it gets emphasized in the very geography of paradise. Flick over the page to Genesis 2, verse 10. Now, have a look here. Genesis 2, 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there we see it divides and it becomes four rivers, rivers that would spread out to water the four corners of the earth now, here's a test for you, physically how could that happen? how could a river flow out of Eden physically? how does that work? And if you're not able to do that the answer is given to us in Ezekiel 28 verse 14 where Eden is spoken of as not a garden Eden is spoken of as Ezekiel 28:14 the holy mountain of God that's how the river flows out from it from Eden where Adam, the Son of God, is placed. He's, he's not made there, by the way. He's taken to paradise specially. But where the Son of God is placed, from there, the river of God's blessing flows down to water all the earth. This is picked up throughout the Bible many times at the temple in Jerusalem. It's picked up in Ezekiel. It's picked up in Revelation, where we hear of a river. Of life flowing from the throne, the presence of the Son of God, the Lamb. For you see, blessing flows down, and it flows down from where the Son of God is. It flows down in Eden from Adam, the Son of God, where he is. And it flows down in the New Jerusalem from where Christ, the Son of God, is. I hope you're holding in there with me. I want you to see the pattern here. It is this. The creation first comes into being because of the love of the Father for his Son, That is why Adam exists, because the father has so loved the son that he wanted to adopt and bless many sons. He so enjoyed his son. He wants his son to be the firstborn. And so, do you see, the blessing of creation comes because of the son. And here, we see the creation once brought into being... Is ongoingly blessed through Adam, the Son of God, who is placed as head over it all. See it in both cases. Blessing comes through sonship. Sonship, we see, is and always was the prime thing for God. The Father. It is the root and source of all blessing, and it is the Father's ultimate blessing, sonship. And if I sound slightly misogynist, slightly chauvinist as I keep saying sonship rather than just childhood, Please hang in there with me till tomorrow and I'll assure you that I'm not being misogynist. I say sonship for a good reason. A theological reason that gives us wonderful hope. Sonship is the ultimate blessing. Created through the Son of God, creation is ongoingly blessed because of a Son of God. And that, you know, is why creation is such an exuberantly beautiful place. Because creation is not a business. It's not a begrudged product. No, creation is the overflow of a father's heart. Creation is where the father would bless a son. It is where he would express his fatherly love for humanity, where he would care for his children. Now, of course, that high honor that Adam has given all makes the fall when it happens so much more terrible so much more tragic so much more strange for created to be the son of God with all things his all things under his feet what did Adam do he thinks there is more to be had with Satan now how could he do such a thing after all that there must be something more going on than simply doing what he was told not to do and there is in his sin Adam rejects who he was made to be he rejects being in the image of God L- listening to the devil is not a godlike thing to do he rejects being in the image of God he rejects his creaturehood he refuses to be a subject creature wanting to be God himself but you know I think there's something deeper than any of that Deeper, deeper. For why would Adam contemplate making this mad move? Why would he do it? Because at bottom, he's rejecting his sonship. His heart is won away from trust. In God's fatherly love. His fatherly kindness to him. And so not trusting that fatherly kindness. He comes to listen to Satan instead. His heart has been won. Away. He believes that God is mean. And ungenerously restrictive. And so. He is being the exact opposite of the Son of God. Who in John 14.31 said, I love the Father, and I do exactly what He commands. So spoke the Son of God. But no... Adam does not do what God commands. And precisely because he no longer loves him. And you see it in how he behaves next. Look at chapter 3 verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. I find this almost incredible. The first voice we hear after the great betrayal is the voice of grace. Man doesn't seek out God. God comes to man. Adam, where are you? Now Adam was made to desire fellowship with God. He ought to have sought him out. Even then, he ought to have sought God out in his fatherly kindness and confessed everything to him. But look at him. See how his heart has turned plunged from confidence and delight in God to shrinking from him as if he were the devil himself. And all along, of course, they've happily been chatting with the accuser and not the Lord of love. Adam was the son of God shrinking from God it is the original story of the prodigal son running from the most kind and loving father thinking that he's stern and aloof and that true pleasure is to be had elsewhere and of course in our madness inherited from adam we keep doing the same ourselves every day don't we we keep thinking that pleasure is to be found elsewhere. That God is unkind and not to be trusted. And. <laughs> that is amazing. Thinking that mere trees. Can hide us. From God. Thinking that we can hide from him. And because. Because. That primary relationship and fatherhood is damaged and rejected. All relationships and fatherhoods are damaged. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God to be like the Son, always looking out to the Father in love and trust. But you see here, look, instead they're coming to love only themselves. Turning from the image of God... Into the image of the devil that they had trusted. Martin Luther. The great reformer. He used to define the sinner as. Homo incurvatus in se. Man. Curved in on himself. That is what it is to be a sinner. A very small withered thing. Now, what that looks like, man curved in on himself, I think is caught very finely by John Milton in the very last lines of Paradise Lost. And Milton, he describes Adam and Eve as they are compelled to leave Eden. And he says this, these last lines of Paradise Lost, he says of Adam and Eve, now sinners, they. Hand in hand, with wadding steps and slow, through Eden took their solitary way. Through Eden took their solitary way. Yes, they're together, but they're apart, solitary. For sin isolates. It makes us devilishly solitary. For rejecting this fatherly God of relationship means rejecting others and other relationships. And so began a world of murder, abuse and hatred. Now... When you see what has gone down in the fall, when you see that, that Adam and Eve have not simply committed a forbidden act, when you see that something way deeper has happened, that their act of disobedience is simply manifesting, it's simply manifesting the deeper issue of the turn in their hearts, then you find you have a much more serious view of the fall of our problem and the contrast with Islam is very stark here for in Islam you start with Allah who is a single solitary person so for Allah relationship is not important relationship is not important and so sin for Allah is not about a relationship broken sin for Allah really is a very superficial thing It is simply, Allah tells you what to do, and if you don't do it, that's sin. It doesn't matter where your heart is. Right? You do what he tells you to do, and if you do it, you've done well. It doesn't matter where your heart is. And so, sure, sin will take you to hell in Islam. But it's only a skin-deep thing. That's all. But with the God of love, the God who is love, sin could not be more serious and devastating. It is about the very core of your being, it is about your heart. And so, even if you manage to get your behavior right, even if you could do that and behave perfectly, the question is, where's your heart? What do you love? What do you desire? And that's revealed who you are. And, you know, there's something else. Not only is sin this deep matter of our hearts that's affected us right down to the very core of our being there's something else if creation was the result of the father's love then to reject the father's love which is what sin is is to reject creation do you see it? creation is the the consequence of the father's love and so if you reject the father's love as we do in sin you must be anti-creation and so sin is sin is anti-being you begin to lose being itself when you lose relationship with God the great 4th, 5th century theologian augustine thought much about this and he put it like this he said man did not fall away so as to become absolutely nothing but being turned towards himself his being became more contracted than it was when he clung to him who supremely is Accordingly, said Augustine, to exist in himself, for man to exist in himself, for us to be our own satisfaction after abandoning God, is not quite to become a non-entity, but it is to approximate to that. Sin makes you pretty much a non-entity. Turning away from the one who is, turning in on yourself, To become almost a non entity. Sin has an anti relational, anti being, wraithing, withering effect. It makes golems out of sneagles, shadows out of great men. And there are two Hebrew words. That capture this. The first word. Is kavodh. Now kavodh. Is usually translated glory. But in the Hebrew. It's a, a word. That has to do with heaviness. Substance. Weight. And God of course. Is the one who supremely has. karvov. He who supremely is. But Adam too, when created, is given. He is crowned with his own created kavov. He has a real substance and weight as the head of creation. The other word is hevel. Hevel is a word that most famously is used in Ecclesiastes, where it's translated meaningless, meaningless, or vanity, vanity. It's a word that's used of false gods because they are nothing. They are but thin air, nothing. But man in his mortality is also described in the Old Testament as evil, but a breath. An insubstantial shadow with an unbearable lightness of being. Created for glory, sin has made us wispy, hollow beings. Beings who subconsciously yearn for the father love we threw away in the garden. Making everything fall apart. Now, I said it wasn't going to be all doom and gloom this morning. And here's another reason why. We need this bit of the story if we're to avoid lethargic despair. And if we're to see reformation in our day. See, we live in a culture that doesn't believe in a meta-narrative That doesn't believe that there is a grand story into which everything fits. And so we live in a culture where the only thing is really my story, my life. And if that's the case, my own story, my own life will be all that matters. And here's how it cashes out. Without belief in a historical fall... Our culture today is left without the category evil. Can I say that again? Without belief in a historical fall, our culture today is left without the category evil. So... Yes, it's used in extraordinary cases in in the public domain where the evilness of evil really can't be avoided. So, major terrorist atrocities, serial rapists. But the word evil has no real grounding when it's used. Because today, with no belief in a catastrophe in our history, everything is natural. And that being the case, it is so much easier to tolerate the death of the weak and the cries of the helpless. Because they are just part of Mother Nature's grand show. And it is not just the culture around us that denies any cosmos altering disaster at the beginning of human history. That the story has gone catastrophically wrong is subtly and not so subtly undermined in the church continually. See, the reformer Martin Luther, one of his sharpest critiques of the theology of his day was that it had minimized sin. And minimizing the problem made The solution easy. Small problem, small solution. See, in medieval Roman Catholicism, the problem was basically this. Can you imagine you just come to medieval Roman Catholic Europe for a moment? Just come in your mind. Okay? Now, here's the problem in medieval Roman Catholic theology. The problem is not that we are born... With a real deep problem of sin. The problem is this God lets holy people into heaven. Which is lovely. It's just that none of us can quite be bothered. We just think, okay, so you, you've got to be holy to get into heaven. We just think, oh, do I have to? And just you know, the holy thing, uh hmm. And so, God very kindly, he provides uh, pilgrimages and sacraments and relics and all that kind of stuff. And through them, he gives this thing called grace, which is basically kind of like a spiritual Red Bull. So, we're all there going, oh, oh holiness, you know, I should, sure I know. And the priest says, here, have some grace. <laughs> oh, Okay. I'm up for being holy. And the one who's really up for being holy is Mary. People would pray, Hail Mary, full of grace. Because she was just like wired with grace. She'd be like, right, set me a holy task and I'm on it. Right? That's, so, in medieval Roman Catholic theology, really, the problem was people just need a good, good kicking to get them going. They just need... To be pepped up a little bit. Their problem is that they're just a bit lazy. Give them a can of grace. Tell them to get going. And that's how to do good ministry. For Luther, the fall was a massive event. Affecting us so thoroughly that it's not that we just can't quite be bothered to do the holiness thing. It is that we are born dead in our sins, absolutely helpless. Meaning that for Luther, his compassion leapt forward. Because he saw not a people who simply couldn't be bothered. He saw a people who were helplessly enslaved. Who were sin addicts. Who needed not a good kicking. Who needed rescue. And that is the shape the story must take if it has gone so seriously wrong. The terrible tragedy of the fall will take more than just a bit of mopping up to reverse. So serious a problem requires a serious solution, a cosmic solution. Beyond our paltry abilities. Death must be overcome. We must be remade. The father-son relationship must be remade. And made of stronger stuff than fickle Adam. As man fell from paradise, the holy mountain of God. We need a man who will ascend the holy hill for us. To take us back there into the presence of God, we need the Son of God. How then must Adam and Eve have thrilled to hear of the seed, the offspring, the child who would crush the serpent's head? A son. They were told, who must be provided, born not of a man, born of woman, who must therefore be provided by God. And so affected was Adam by this promise, that he gives his wife a new name. That is an action that is always of the utmost significance in scripture. Whether it's with Abraham, whether it's with Joshua, whether it's with Peter, a new name. Previously, when he first set eyes on his wife, Adam had called her woman. That was her name. She mirrored him as man. But in light of the hope that he now has... He gives her a new name, Eve, meaning life. The story gone wrong? Yes. Created as the Son of God, to know God's fatherly love, created for glory, Adam and all humanity in him had turned into a shriveled, shrunken thing. He turned into death. And so we pant now for the seed of the woman, the son of God, as one who will do more than any ability of ours could. One who will come to us and bring us his own glorious sonship, his own glorious sun-shaped indestructible life that is where the story goes let's pray oh father we are mad mad people that we should ever abandon you or think that pleasure is elsewhere but in Adam and ongoingly we keep doing it and because of rejecting you the source of all life and goodness and pleasure our world is such a broken place and we feel it every day in our bodies in the news in our world For sending Jesus, the Son of God, to make all this untrue. To more than undo what went wrong with Adam. To bring us his own sonship. And I pray for us that we might never minimize what sin is. So that we think we can correct it by our own abilities but make us a people who feeling its weight daily must throw ourselves into the arms of Jesus in his grace that he might take us to you and there with his confidence we might call you up. Oh, we praise you. Oh, we praise you, our Father. In Jesus' most precious name. Amen.